From the Edwin Cardinal O'Brien Pastoral Center in Washington, D.C., home base for the Archdiocese for the Military Services USA, this is Catholic Military Life, the only official podcast of the Archdiocese. I'm your moderator, Taylor Henry, and our subject for this episode is the coronavirus pandemic, and uh, very uh, honored to have on the phone from Maryland today, Rear Admiral retired Dr. Joyce Johnson. Dr. Johnson is a physician and infectious disease epidemiologist who has been actively involved in the coronavirus pandemic. She's also a retired officer, retiring at the rank of Rear Admiral Upper Half, Admiral Johnson's last duty assignment of Surgeon General or Director Health and Safety of the U.S. Coast Guard. Uh, Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, well, I appreciate the opportunity because this is such an important topic in today's world. It is indeed, and thank you also for your service. And I should also mention that uh, you are on the uh, Finance Council here at the Archdiocese, and we appreciate that service as well. Thank you. Dr. Johnson, Why? let's start from the very beginning uh, uh, without belaboring the point. Why do we call it coronavirus? Okay, well, it's a virus, and the reason it's called coronavirus is because there is a corona or a crown or a halo around the virus, and so that's what it was named after. A coronavirus is a general term for a number of different viruses. It's not specific to the virus that's causing today's issues. And uh, you say there's a a crown-like shape. Uh, That's when you look at it under a microscope, obviously. Actually, it's under an electron microscope. These particles, as all viruses are, are too small to be even seen under a regular microscope. Wow. Okay, well, what do we know about where the novel coronavirus originated? It's difficult to say exactly how and where it originated. Certainly the first uh, reported cases were in Wuhan, China. And it seems that these, it's an, actually it's a specific kind of coronavirus. It's a beta coronavirus. And the other beta coronaviruses were MERS and SARS. And so the belief is that MERS and SARS and this virus also had their origin in bats at some point in time. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a virus. Um, the, all of these viruses uh, are, live in animals such as camels and cats and cattle and bats. And, in fact, the last case of MERS or the cases of MERS that are ongoing are all human cases that were transmitted from camels. And the conspiracy theories uh, come out when there's a, uh, a crisis of this sort. We've heard all kinds of uh, theories about how it's possible this virus could have originated in a Chinese bioweapons plant. What do you think of those? Um, I think there's a few things related to that that are fact. Um, my understanding is that there is a Chinese high-security biocontainment lab in Wuhan. I think it's also known that the virus was first transmitted uh, to people in Wuhan. Whether there is a link um, between those two things, I don't think we know. Why is the coronavirus so dangerous? It's dangerous for a number of different reasons. To me, the primary reason is that it is so easily transmitted. Um, and we can see how easily transmitted it is by the, you know, ever, the ever-increasing number of cases. The other thing about it is, though, clinically, people, 
that are younger and healthier don't tend to have that many symptoms. For people over 80, in um, really in essentially all countries, the death rate is between 10 and 15 percent, which is an extraordinarily high death rate. Wow. And the disease that can cause COVID-19, what can you tell us about that, the symptoms and uh, uh, you know, how does it express itself in, in, in the worst cases? Uh, what happens to the patients who have this disease? First of all, I want to really compliment you for knowing that COVID-19 is the name of the disease. <laughs> Many people consider COVID-19 the name of the virus, but it's actually the name of the disease. Where the name of the virus, the full name, is the 200, or 2019 or 19 novel coronavirus, and uh, the World Health Organization named it SARS-CoV-2. So COVID-19 is an easier thing to say, and I think in common usage it's, it's viewed both ways. But I, I really want to say I, I'm, I'm impressed that you did your homework and, and knew the difference. Well, I've tried to keep up with it, uh, uh, Dr. Johnson. Uh, yeah, I suppose it's the same or very similar to uh, HIV, the virus, and AIDS, the disease. It, okay, so it's, it's interesting that you asked me that question because I actually began my career as an epidemiologist at the Centers for Disease Control um, working on HIV before we even knew it was a virus. I started it at the very, very beginning. Um, back then, a lot of people thought it was a conspiracy theory of the CIA doing this to, to gay men and IV drug users and, and so forth. But a couple of differences between the two. Um, well, there's, there's a, one, one big difference is that the incubation period for HIV was very, very long. The incubation period for this is very short, for between 2 and 14 days so that you'll see an increasing number of cases very, very fast. But from a technology perspective, and this is really the fortunate part about this uh, situation today, is that back in, in 1980, 81, when HIV and the first cases with this funny syndrome were recognized, it took several years to recognize and to be able to identify the virus. It took a very long time to even know that it was a viral disease. Some people thought so, but others did, thought it wasn't. Some people thought it was a toxin or something else. So that the fact that really within just a couple of months, we know so much about the virus. We were able to get it. It was first reported by China at the end of December. But people think China probably was aware of it for some, a few weeks before that. The next week, China provided the world with the genomic sequencing, which is, is just incredible. And that's a very key part to trying to develop, um, one is to, to track the, the disease so we can see whether or not the virus is changing. It's also very helpful in terms of developing a vaccine. In fact, my understanding is that some um, potential vaccines have been developed by countries that didn't even have access to the virus. They only had access to the genomic sequencing. Wow. What are the symptoms? I guess that was your question some time ago. Sorry about that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Very interesting, the background you're providing. I appreciate it. Okay. So um, the symptoms that are probably best known for are fever, cough, and shortness of breath. People tend to get tired. Some people have diarrhea. Now it's also saying that it can be associated with sneezing, a runny nose, and a sore throat. About 80% of the people have mild or no symptoms, but those people can still transmit disease. 
about 20% are hospitalized, usually for a week or two, and about 5% require care in the intensive care unit, and they may be hospitalized for a month. And this 5% are the ones that uh, ventilators are needed for, or at least some of them, right? Correct. Generally, with this disease, if one is in an intensive care unit, they need ventilator support. And why? Is it because they uh, their lungs are incapable of taking in oxygen? Or what, what, what's the reason for the ventilator? Basically, they develop a very serious pneumonia. I see. Uh, how is this virus spread? You mentioned sneezing. Uh, what are what are all the ways that the the virus is spread? Well, in terms of the ways it's spread, like m- much about this virus, we're, we're still all learning. Originally, we thought that it was spread almost exclusively by coughing and sneezing, and the large droplets from coughing and sneezing. Now we recognize that close contact perhaps even virus and moist air, if people are very close together, can spread disease. Certainly the virus has been um, found in fecal matter, which brings up the question of oral fecal spread. There were recently several studies done trying to determine how long the virus would live on tabletops and other surfaces, and depending on the surface, it's been found to live for several days. And that's the reason why hand washing is so important is that particularly if you're touching elevator buttons or things that a lot of people touch, if they're contaminated, that contamination can live for quite a while. So you can pick up the virus just by touching an elevator button or some other surface where it's been contaminated. Yes, and that's one of the reasons why they say don't touch your eyes or eyes, mouth, um, or nose is because your eyes, mouth, and nose have mucous membranes and very thin skin, and so that the virus can penetrate that and you can become infected that way. So what are the best ways to protect yourself from infection? The best ways are really called non-pharmaceutical interventions, or NPIs. And they're things that that we hear about all the time on on the TV and and radio and and um, and what we read. Washing our hands often. So if our hands get contaminated with virus, we can wash it off. In washing hands, it's important to wash with soap and water for about 20 seconds. And it's also become very popular to use hand sanitizer. And the thing that's so important with that is that you need enough to actually moisten your hands, and you also need to continue to rub that for 20 seconds. Taking a a drop of hand sanitizer and putting it on your hands is not going to do much to, to really sanitize them. What about face masks? Okay, so the, the face masks, I think, are a difficult situation. At the present time, the Centers for Disease Control recommends face masks for people who have um, the infection, primarily so that their own coughs and sneezes are retained in the mask. It's also extremely important for everyone to cover their coughs or sneezes with their elbow and not with their hands. So wearing a face mask really... Uh, uh, prevents the wearer's potential infection from spreading. Uh, it's more to protect others than it is for the wearer. Right, and that, that's very much the position of the Centers for Disease Control at this time. The, now, there are some exceptions to that. So um, healthcare workers are an exception to that because healthcare workers are so close and are so involved with the, um, with the patients. Of course, those are different kinds of masks, uh, in some cases, aren't they? 
Ideally, they're different kinds of masks. The problem is with the shortage of masks today, many hospitals are changing their infection control practices and using pretty much any kind of mask that they can get, just regular surgical masks. Well, let's talk about military populations for a moment. The military populations are constantly moving, as you well know. Uh, is there any extra risk to the military populations? Um, for, for, for example, is it more likely to spread faster in a closed environment such as a warship? I, I think there's different ways to look at the risk in the military. For one thing is just the country or the geographical region that they're in. So, for example, if you're a military member in Italy, Germany, Spain, Korea, you are at greater risk than in some other parts of the world just because there are so, there are so many um, infected people there. So Korea is doing an amazing job in, in reducing their number of cases. So, so there's that kind of risk. It's also important to remember that you can only get infection if the virus is there. So no matter how close you are to other people, if they're not infected, you can't get infected. I see. So uh, can someone who has been infected but has no symptoms spread the coronavirus? Definitely. And I think that's probably one of the most important things for everybody to actually believe and, and to realize. In fact, it's possible that early in disease, people may even spread disease more because the uh, virus is first at the top of their throat, and, and so the virus is more easily, um, for, you know, for breathing and, like, coughing and things, ex excreted. It's really important, and, in fact, it's because of the asymptomatic carriers, at least that's one reason, for the recommendations in the United States and much of Europe and in other parts of the world as well for people to stay home, stay in their houses, stay away from other people. Just because somebody else is well does not, or seems well, does not mean that they cannot spread disease to you. And that's especially true of um, younger adults and children. Children seem not to get the disease as severely. They tend to stay asymptomatic. But if those same children go to grandmother's house, they can spread disease to grandparents, in which it is extremely severe. Wow. What about someone who has had COVID-19 and recovered? Can they still infect someone else? Generally, the answer to that is no, but I'm not exactly sure how long someone can spread virus after they're sick. What about through food, including refrigerated or frozen food? Is it possible that the virus could live either uh, in the food itself or on the packaging? So, again, I think in, in, in looking at the food question, we need to recognize that the virus has... Unless there's a person who's sick, or the, the, the virus would have to get to the food. The virus does not live well in heat, so cooking the food would certainly um, make the food safe. I don't really, I mean, the, the, the ways that, the vi that food could potentially transmit disease is if someone who was sick touched the package, someone else touched the package, and it wouldn't really be a food issue, it would really be the packaging issue. Um, though not really practical in this country, if one ate a contaminated, an, an animal that was infected, because we, you know, we mentioned earlier that animals can get infection, if one ate an undercooked animal that had disease, then one could potentially get infected that way as well. But it, it's, that's, not a common, that's not a common situation. We've heard a lot of discussion in the news media about calling up the military to confront this 
health crisis, and, and the Navy is, in fact, sending a couple of uh, hospital ships, uh, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, the one on uh, the West Coast to Los Angeles, the one on the East Coast to New York. Uh, how do you, uh, what do you think about this? Is it a good idea? Is there anything else the military can do to help? Well, the military is actually doing a lot to help. Um, one of the things that, that, to me, is just extremely important that they're doing right now is they have um, stockpiles um, of um, various equipment, such as um, uh, ventilators, um, masks, things like that, that they're sharing with um, the Department of Health and Sur- Human Services, who will then distribute across the country. And these are critical supplies right now. These are the kinds of supplies that will not only save patients' lives, but they will also save the lives of healthcare workers. Um, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers um, has been activated to build out some alternative care sites. Um, my understanding is that they're going to be building about 4,000 bed hospitals around the country. Um, the National Guard has been um, activated in New York, California, and Washington State, and I believe the federal government is paying, um, paying for those activations. Um, there, there's, there's probably other things that, I, that I'm not even aware of, but, but the military is actively involved, while at the same time trying to maintain its readiness um, for its, its primary um, operations. The other thing that the military has been very, very helpful with, and that is that they have brought people who were stranded in various parts of the world, U.S. citizens, back to the U.S. on military flights. And they are continuing to do that, is my understanding. Wow. President- oh, one other thing, too. I, I, will, I will get all my list done here. Uh, <laughs> another, another thing is, is that the military is going to allow the use of their laboratories for testing. And I know how important that can be because I was involved, and I was on active, active duty back in the anthrax days. And the military... Um, has has a lot of laboratories. I'm in the Washington, D.C. area, and here we, we definitely have them. And it's very, very important to increase the national lab capacity. Well, the military is quite involved, and it's a good thing. The president uh, refers to the virus as an uh, invisible enemy. And uh, uh, I am 62 years old, and I don't remember anything like this ever in my lifetime. Maybe the closest I could think would have been the Cuban Missile Crisis. But that was over with in short order. Uh, and other than 9-11, uh, I can't imagine uh, any period in my lifetime where we have felt under siege. It's almost like a, like an attack. And, and, you know, a lot of people have compared it to 9-11. And I was uh, in my office in the Coast Guard watching the Pentagon burn. So I was very much affected by 9-11. Um, but at the same time, in terms of the actual geographic areas that were affected, there were really three, New York, Pennsylvania, and Washington, D.C. With this, everybody in every state and almost every community is being affected or will be affected very, very soon. We've heard a lot about the efforts to develop both a vaccine and a a therapeutic cure. Uh, How soon do you suppose these might come along? It's very difficult to say. There's a number of vaccine candidates that are currently in testing. But there's, uh, at one point in my career, I worked um, at the Food and Drug Administration, and so I have some understanding of vaccine and and drug, um, the approval process. In order for a vaccine to be effective, it has to in some way 
counteract the virus. So you have to in some way develop an immunity. So that's one thing that you have to, to test. You also have to test the overall safety of the vaccine. I believe that any va- all these vaccine candidates are going to be um, gone through the approval process as fast as possible. But it's also extremely important to make sure that they are both safe and effective. Estimates that I've heard are somewhere between 12 and 18 months. I think that could be optimistic. One good news with regards to the vaccine is it does not seem that the virus mutates a lot. If a virus mutates a lot, that makes vaccines much, much more difficult. And that's one of the reasons why even to this day we don't have a vaccine for HIV AIDS. Wow. So, oh, then I, go ahead. You, you also asked about the therapeutics? Yes. Okay. So with the therapeutics, like with the vaccines, there's a number of, of clinical trials going on, and there's also a lot of, I'll call them uh, informal trials. So if a physician is treating a patient, because there's really no established treatment except just supportive care, the physician may try different things. For example, a lot of the antivirals that are being used for other diseases, other infections are being tried for this. Um, people have probably heard on the radio or TV the um, use of chloroquine with an antibiotic. There's, I, I believe those are going into clinical trials. Um, but the clinical trials are, are, are being expedited as much as possible. The one thing I really want to warn people about is that if they read on the Internet or hear from their friends, oh, you know, for $20 you can buy this and it's going to cure coronavirus, that is probably a fraud. And there are more and more frauds um, and, and things, problems like that coming up. So really be careful and, and pay attention to what's real and what's not real. If things make unrealistic promises, they're probably not true. And here in the Archdiocese of Washington, as well as dioceses and archdioceses across the country, uh, archbishops have advised folks to stay home from Mass on weekends. Uh, do you think this is a, a good thing? It's never a good thing not to have Mass. But in today's world, going into a church with many other people, the probabilities are some of them are already infected and asymptomatic would only spread disease further. I think that those archbishops, as difficult as, this, as these decisions must be for them during the Easter season or, or the, during Lent, that they really, really need to com- be commended for doing that. And it's an extremely important thing to do to not spread disease. I think you know, there's many TV um, masses. Many of the parishes are having kind of local masses on TV through YouTube and um, in, in, in other on-site things, so that there certainly are, are ways to go to, um, to, to participate in Mass virtually. As an infectious disease epidemiologist, are you surprised that a, a virus could have this kind of global impact? I'm not surprised that it has this global impact, but I'm surprised at how quickly it's moving. Um, if the doubling time is in the United States is about every two days, which is incredible. Um, so the, the, the rapidity of it is probably of more surprise to me than the fact that it's actually happening. And would you attribute that to how easily it can be spread? 
I would attribute it to how, yes, that, that's probably the, the, the main reason. And the other thing is that it's spread when people are asymptomatic, so that when people are probably spreading virus the most, they're out and about, and they're, they're out and about spreading disease to others who are unaware that they're becoming infected. So, for example, the cases that we're seeing now in the United States, and I think there's probably close to 40,000 of them today, is that those people were actually infected between one and two weeks ago. So, well, yeah. Go ahead. No, and so that that so that we're that the actual number of cases is always going to be about one to two weeks behind the number of people who are who are infected and will get sick. And we've seen a lot of pictures of the kids on spring break down in Florida going to the beach. What do you think about that? I couldn't believe it. Is all I can say. Um, I must admit, I have a park across from the street from my house, and there's kids playing there in groups. Um, there's probably, there's a reason why the recommendations are to stay in your house and stay away from other people. And the problem is every day, the risk of being out and about with others is greater and greater as there's more and more asymptomatic people spreading disease. Um, I have the utmost, um, I don't know the respect or appreciation, or but for the people that are forced to work, the people at the at grocery store cash registers, you know, mail carriers, pe- people that because of the nature of their job, physicians and healthcare workers, it's, a lot of people are exposed by the nature of their work in terms of service to others of us, and I think we have a responsibility to stay put as best we can and not make even more people at risk and those folks you mention are the heroes in this crisis they truly are and uh, so some of the young folks say well uh, you know i'm young i'm not likely to get sick but that's not really the whole picture is it well first of all a lot of young people do get sick and a lot of young people do get very sick um the other part of it is is that when the young people get exposed and get sick or, or carry infection they transmit to other people on average, a person transmits disease to just over two people. But some healthy people have transmitted disease to over 100. And the problem is, is if you're a young person and you transmit disease to two people, those two people transmit it to two more, and, you know, so pretty soon one person can almost cause an epidemic. It, it increases exponentially. Exactly. Well, in the last... Uh few minutes we have here, uh, let's uh, carefully go back over what folks can do to uh, protect themselves and others. Okay. Well, the most important thing is, is to wash your hands. Also, not to touch eyes, nose, or mouth with unwashed hands. And if you have children that you're taking care of, do your best to, to have them do those things as well, though I know that's a challenge. If you're going to cough or sneeze, cover your mouth and nose, but not with your hands, but with your elbow. And and just really make sure that your droplets stay in your elbow. It also, the United States Centers for Disease Control recommends a six-foot six distance from other people. Um, it's worth noting that the World Health Organization recommends a meter. In reality, both of those distances are probably somewhat arbitrary. I personally like to keep six to ten feet away from others if, if I'm, you know, forced to be outside. But the, the message is the farther the better. You know, stay home, and staying home means staying home. It doesn't mean having the neighbors over for coffee. 
It doesn't mean that the children have a play date. Um, it doesn't mean that you and a friend go to the grocery store together. It really means being home and isolating yourself with the family members or the people that, that, that you live with. Would you care to guess how long we're going to be doing this? That's a question I'm asked a lot. I don't think it really has an answer. Um, you know, an, another thing, I guess part of it's going to depend on how much, how many people choose to self-quarantine if they know they're exposed and so that they're not out exposing others. If you look at China, the first cases began in around probably mid-November, mid-December. Um, and they are still having cases now, though their number of cases is decreasing. Dr. Joyce Johnson, a physician and infectious disease epidemiologist and retired rear admiral who has been actively involved in the coronavirus pandemic. Thank you so much, Dr. Johnson, for talking to me.